Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free. Did you know the best seeds for your garden don't come from the nursery? In fact, the seeds that will create the most robust and delicious fruits and vegetables come directly from your garden. This is because they are uniquely adapted to your growing conditions, better than anything you can buy from a fancy catalog or website. Through the magic of seed saving, it is quite possible to have the garden of your dreams. The best part is, saving your own seeds is surprisingly easy and fun. With a bit of instruction, anyone can become a seed-saving superstar. Let us teach you how in our free seed-saving webinar. Just text SEEDS to 33444 to sign up or visit SeedSavingHacked.org for more information. That's SEEDS to 33444 or visit SeedSavingHacked.org. You're listening to the Urban Farm Podcast, your partner in the grow your own food revolution. Whether you've just been introduced to urban farming or you're a lifelong advocate, we're sure you'll leave feeling more informed, equipped, and empowered to dig deeper into the soil of your local food economy. With you every step of the way, here's your host, Greg Peterson. Today on the Urban Farm Podcast, we have Sherry Pelzma of Pollinator Parkways to talk about her experience with bolsting pollinators in public spaces. Sherry grew up on the rural Oregon coast before moving to Portland to finish her degree. She has spent the last 10 years in community education and runs a program where participants learn do-it-yourself skills to make homes safer and more energy efficient. As an environmentalist who loves macro photography, she took a special interest in pollinators and other insects, which quickly blossomed into the love that drove the founding of the project Pollinator Parkways. Welcome to the show today, Sherry. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at now? Sure. Well... I've been really concerned about pollinator declines. I've been reading articles about it for years. There's been a lot of focus on honeybees and colony collapse disorder. Mm -hmm. But what I learned was that other 
pollinators that were native, like bumblebees and monarch butterflies, were also experiencing a lot of decline. Mm -hmm. And I felt Mm -hmm. a lot of despair about that. I've been photographing bees for about 10 years now. Wow. And I recently became, I recently had the opportunity to become a homeowner. Mm -hmm. And I had converted my parking strip to just a bunch of succulents because I thought, I don't know anything about gardening, but you Uh can't kill a succulent. Right. (laughs) So I just filled up my parking strip with that. And my neighbor across the way had thrown down a pollinator-friendly flower mix. And the second summer that my strip was in place, it all bloomed. And I was standing there talking to my neighbor, and we were talking about how concerned we were about bees. And there were so many Mm -hmm. bees visiting our gardens that we could see the air traffic crossing the street. Oh, my gosh. And I thought, wow, imagine if lots of neighbors did this. Mm -hmm. We could create maybe a corridor to support pollinators along the way. And then I threw out some stuff on the internet and neighborhood associations, and I asked people who wants to build a pollinator corridor with me. And we got together as a group, about 12 of us, and decided that converting parking strips would be a great way to visually beautify the neighborhood and bring awareness about the topic and you know, has this, this little hell strip that's pretty useless and ugly and, uh-huh. you know, a pain to water and, and actually create habitat out of it. And that was a little over a year and a half ago. Wow. So a parking strip, is that parking that's places? A, that's, yeah, usually that's the strip of, oftentimes it's a strip of grass in between the sidewalk and the road. Ah, oh, That you right. cross over, mm-hmm, you park next to. So it's called a parkway or a parking strip or yeah. some people call them hell strips because they just tend to collect weeds and dog poo. Right, garbage. <laughs> right. That's the one. I don't know if you know the name Ron Finley. That's the one he turned into his garden in L.A. And and uh, mm-hmm. yeah. So yeah, let's let's identify exactly what you mean by pollinator. Sure. A po- so a pollinator is any kind of animal that is transferring pollen from one flower to another. Uh-huh. Basically, this is what allows flowering plants to reproduce. Mm-hmm. So it can be a bee or a hummingbird or a bat or a beetle or a fly, butterflies, moths. There are lots of pollinators, but bees are the best at it, and they're most they're the most well known. Uh huh. Wow, I, I like how you said animals because normally we just think as pollinators as bees, mm-hmm. but there are so many but a, others. But a bee is an animal. Yes, it is. Yes, absolutely. It is. (laughs) I I would have where I would have gone with that is I would have thought or said bugs. But, I, you know, I've and I know that bats and other things pollinate. But, you know, until you really stop to think about it, uh, it's, you know, it's like, wow, how cool is that? Yeah. And what I really saw with uh, photography was really getting in there and seeing I don't know, it's, it's kind of a weird thing to say, but when you see that this little tiny, tiny creature has a face, <laughs> mm. it has eyes, and it has, mm-hmm. it has this purpose, and it moves with a purpose, and you see it, and you see how much effort is actually going into the process of pollinating, you come to realize how much we take for granted. Yeah. Because it's not just our food systems. You see oftentimes they'll say one in three bites of food is dependent on bees. Um, but really, if you think about it, if 
if over 90% of flowering plants need pollinators uh-huh. in order to reproduce. Think about on a larger scale of all the animals, yep. all the life that depends on the fruits and, yeah. and the flowers themselves and trees. What happens if those pollinators disappear? Yeah. Well, and you got me thinking in this particular moment, really, isn't it 100% of everything that we eat? If you track it back, depends on a pollinator? That's, well, that's kind of a, a big question, right? It's yeah. a, a pollinators are often their keystone species, and, and if you understand ecologies, mm-hmm. everything is very connected. And when a species like a bee disappears, the impact, I think, I think it's a little arrogant for us to think that we can even try and quantify it, frankly. We yeah. don't know what happens until it happens, and it's usually a lot more intense, uh, you know, consequence than we may uh, predict. Yeah. So you mentioned a term called keystone species. Say more about that. So keystone species is actually, I've um, in biology and things, they they're animals that if they do have a serious disruption, a population explosion, or their population disappears, it has a really large, profound impact on the environment. And what scientists now like are starting to discover is that there are a lot more keystone species uh-huh. than they had thought. Uh, you know, you may hear uh, common things may say wolves and Yellowstone, right? Right. Very charismatic animal that we can relate to as a keystone species, but then they found that, oh, also beavers and squirrels mm. and deer and all this tree, actually these plants are also keystone species. So it's almost becoming an outdated term as so many animals and plants fall into the category of being crucial to the environment. Yeah. Wow. So why do these pollinators need our help? So pollinators have been, have, have experienced pretty rapid declines. Monarch butterflies, for example, have dropped, their populations have gone down around 90% since the mid-90s, which is not a very long period of time. And while impact on native bees, native bee declines have been harder to track because native bees are often little tiny guys that mm-hmm. people aren't really paying attention to. And there's 4,000 like species. Yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, and there's 4,000 species of native bees just in the U.S. alone. Yeah. But as they're starting to track them, they're finding these rapid declines. And it's a variety of issues. Chemicals is one of the famous one, uh, ones that are getting a lot of press neonicotinoids, which is a type of systemic pesticide. It gets into the pollen of the plant and causes lots of damage. There's also climate change is impacting everything, including Mm -hmm. pollinators. Habitat destruction and fragmentation is a big piece. There are studies showing, too, that even... So honeybees and bumblebees are used in agriculture, and they're actually trucked from one oh, yes. place to another. Right. So if you have, you know, a, an almond orchard and they truck the bees in and the bees come and they, they flood the local ecosystem and they're pollinating the uh, almonds and then once they're done blossoming, they truck the bees off to someplace else. Well, those bees are, they're being worked really hard and they have a variety of diseases and mites and, you know, they have they bring pathogens with them that can infect native bees as well. 
in addition to out-competing the native bees that are just, you know, in that area, doing their doing their thing, living their life, and then suddenly <laughs> all these oh, other yeah. competitors appear. So that also puts stress on mm, bees. Wow. And so that's where my project is really to say, all right, we have habitat fragmentation. Um, you know, let's, let's create habitat that's supportive, that's pesticide-free, that's a safe space for pollinators and, frankly, you know, other, other urban wildlife as well to, you know, thrive. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned habitat fragmentation. That's another term that I know maybe a lot of our listeners haven't heard. Mm-hmm. Can you say a little bit more about that and what it is? Sure. It's a lot of, a lot of animals need a, a, a space. You know, they need space mm-hmm. to migrate and to have enough food to gather and for nesting and things like that. And when you're squeezed into smaller and smaller mm-hmm. spaces or your habitat has um, a residential neighborhood going through the middle all of right. it and then it's squeezed from all these sides, this kind of pressure is being put on wildlife all the time. Yeah. And some animals can, like coyotes and raccoons and possum, can adapt to the urban environment and, you know, they live on, you know, garbage or cat food or whatever. And bees can actually do pretty well in urban settings. They can handle the noise and, you know, all these kinds of things that the animals are bombarded with in urban right. settings. But so where, uh, when I was coming back to the story about the pollinators going from my yard to the neighbor's yard, what we're doing is, is we're, we're expanding on small pieces of habitat. I just have a little parking strip, but my neighbor's yard creates another piece of habitat, mm, which is expanding right. the habitat available to the bees and defragmenting it, so to speak. So your, your pollinator parkway project then takes these spaces and, and interconnects them with pollinating plants? That's the hope. All right. So what ideally, what's, where I'm working, I'm working a lot in just my neighborhood in Portland. And as I continue to do projects every year and encourage people to do projects, this year, this will only be the second year that we've done it this fall. We'll mm-hmm. rip up parking strips and do some planting nice. with volunteers. Uh-huh. And already we have neighbors that are, you know they saw their neighbors and they thought oh I really like that I like that idea I can do that yeah and then I want to do it too and I want to sign and I you know I want to participate in what my neighbors are participating in which is was the hope so right. we'll already start to have strings of habitat happening and and when neighbors also talk to each other about pesticides mm. you know it's mm-hmm. like hey you know you don't actually really need to spray that you could just pull the weed or, you know, if your plant is being nibbled on, maybe that's actually not a bad thing because it's yeah. part of an ecosystem. Right. Your plant is actually providing food in the form of pollen and with its leaves and its body is shelter and, uh, you know, the perfect, the quote unquote perfect plant, maybe that's not the ideal. And so having discussions too about what, what makes a beautiful space is a beautiful space, a flawless space that with perfect lines or is uh-huh. a beautiful space, the space that's thriving with you know, <laughs> wildlife. Biodiversity. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. So a year and a half ago, you brought together 12 of your neighbors. Mm-hmm. How many do yep. you have now? Because people are starting to get interested. <laughs> is, how is it spreading? Tell me about that. 
Well, it's spread. I I am really the core person who does the basic stuff. I did the research. Mm -hmm. I worked with, well, I did a lot of research to ask myself, all right, it's a really small space. So much like square foot gardening, you know, how do I make maximum use of a small space to have enough biodiversity to support a wide variety of pollinators? So I worked with different community organizations as well, like the Audubon Society here Mm, has this mm -hmm. backyard bird habitat certification program that works with native plants and the Xerces Society, which is an amazing international organization to protect invertebrates and my local soil and water conservation districts. Uh And I read books and I really researched to say, all right, (laughs) each plant, you know, how, um, how can each plant serve the highest number of pollinators yeah. was one of them. And then what is, sorry, what are the ways that a small space can support them the most? Mm-hmm. And so what I found was in the end that native plants is huge because native plants have co-evolved with native bees from the flower shape to the oh, time yeah. that they bloom matches with how, <clears throat> when bees emerge at different times, and host plants for butterflies, the chemical composition of a plant, Mm -hmm. of a native plant, is different than an alien ornamental plant. And so a caterpillar can't eat these kind of foreign (laughs) plants. So monarch butterflies only eat milkweed. That one, that's a piece of information that's getting out there, right? That's the only plant that their caterpillars can eat. So native plants being a part, had to be a critical part of any kind of pollinator habitat. And then pesticide-free, of course, yeah. but also that means buying a plant that hasn't been treated oh, right. with insecticides yep. and pesticides. And so having conversations with your nursery, and nurseries are starting to change to wake what up. they use because yeah. of demand. Yeah. So your voice as a customer is incredibly powerful. And I just called nurseries and I go, you know, do you, what do you use? How do you deal with pests? And if they said things like integrated pest management, which means using biological, you know, like predators right. to eat pests, then I was happy with that. But if they used chemicals, I just said, all right, well, you know, when you guys update your methods, like I'll be more inclined to buy from you. Yeah. I'm, I'm not very confrontational. I like to be really positive. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to let them know that, you know, you're losing business. Right. There's actually people that care about this. And then the third piece, so natives, pesticide-free, and then the third piece being staggered blooming time. Oh, right. So queen bumblebees come out of hibernation. They're one of the first ones to come out, them and mason bees. There's certain little bees that come out earlier than everybody else, mm-hmm. and they need food. So they need a food source. Uh, that's oh, going that's to early in help the them survive. Yeah. And then on the other end of the spectrum, right now, that same queen bumblebee is trying to gather up enough pollen and many other bees do the same thing to, to get her through the winter. Right. And yeah. so it's really critical that there are blooming plants right now that can accommodate those bees that come out late yeah. and they kind of stay out until the last minute to gather as much pollen as they can to survive all winter. And to give you some idea about the scope, coming back to the queen bumblebees, uh-huh. all the workers have died now. Worker bees. And that queen, all the little worker bumblebees, every bee is different, but mm-hmm. bumblebees, all the workers have died. And she is going to be responsible for the entire next generation of bees. Wow. 
So she's like, she's kind of pregnant right now. Like she has these fertilized eggs mm-hmm. in her body and, and she's gathering up the pollen. And so she needs to have, like, if she starves, that's a really big deal. That's hundreds of bees <laughs> won't yeah. exist next year. So having that early and that late bloom and then of course the whole time in between is the other component to making a pollinator parkway or what i consider to be a crucial pollinator habitat yeah so i have i have a curious question for you and it may surprise you because it's you know it's not on the list of the ones that we've talked about Mm -hmm. so i have an urban farm here and i grow food plants Mm -hmm. why is it important to have other non-food pollinators around so, if you uh, do, you like tomatoes. Do you grow tomatoes in your garden? Yeah, that is one of my favorite things to grow. Yeah. <laughs> so, here's, I think tomatoes are a really great reason to think about why we need the native bees. Uh-huh. So, a honeybee cannot pollinate a tomato because the tomato mm. pollen is, for lack of a better, it's kind of sticky. It's hard. It's really stubborn. It likes to stay put. Oh, yes. And so a bumblebee and other, other a couple of different native bees can come and grab onto the flower and it will actually vibrate its flight muscles and the whole bee will like buzz uh-huh. and it will shake the pollen right off of the blossom and it Ooh. like attaches to the bee. Bees are kind of statically charged so the pollen sticks to them. Right. And then, you know, then your bee goes to the next flower and pollinates your tomatoes. Mm. So this is where, this is a native bee job where a, the honeybee, which actually isn't native to the U.S., it's a right. domesticated, imported species, mm-hmm. um, is not capable of doing that. Got it. And so anytime most of your, the food you're growing in your garden probably requires pollination, and some yep. of it, like tomatoes, have specialty pollination requirements. Got it. It would be very so a squash you might be able to take like a little cotton swab and pollinate your own squash. But doing that with your tomatoes would be much, much more difficult. You have to get a special machine that vibrates at the same yeah. the same way that a bumblebee would. Yeah. One, one of the things, and I, I, I mean, I knew the answer to that question before I asked <laughs> it, but one of the things that, that I have found is that when I have lots of things, I, you know, it's basically flowering and going to seed. When I have lots of things here at the urban farm going to seed, I never have a lack of pollinators here. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. plant lots of flowers, everybody. Absolutely. I mean, I, my front yard, I converted into um, a garden space as well and have lots of plants that just grow right next to it nice. that attract the bees, and then yep. they move on to my flowers as well cool. and get those going. So Great partnership. What actions do you and Pollinator Parkways do to promote supporters? Well, mine is, uh, most of my research is really specific to my area. Uh-huh. So I have so I have a website, pollinatorparkways.org. Nice. And I have in there, I created this 10-page manual Ooh. on how to convert a parking strip. And it's everything from pollinatorparkways.org. Dot org. Very good. And in there is this manual. It's a PDF, and it talks about how to sheet mulch versus you know, digging up your parking strip mm-hmm. and what kind of plants you want to choose. Now, it's uh, it's really important to pick plants that are native to your area. And mm-hmm. it's just the more research I've done on that, just the more and more of a believer I am oh, in yeah. how important that is. Yep. 
<clears throat> so what I did, so the, my manual is really specific to the Pacific Northwest. But to find out the plants that are really good for your area, mm-hmm. <clears throat> I'm a big fan of soil and water conservation districts. Oh, which yes. should be in every place across the country. Yep has one and not all of them focus on native plants but you can also you can often find you know ones that are near you can you know pick a neighboring one and the plants would be pretty much the same and then the Xerces Society has a really great list of plants that are good for native pollinators by area mm-hmm. what society and is I that actually the Xerces Society hmm, and I've that heard is of that. Yeah, they are an invertebrate protection group. It's X E R C E S. And on the actually on the pollinatorparkway.org website, you can click on there's actually a resource section. Oh, good. good. Where I talk about good literature that I really enjoyed and opportunities too to be a citizen scientist. So if you want to oh, count nice. bees or identify bees, you have options to actually give that information to scientists oh. to help with conservation efforts. Uh-huh. And there are just areas where you can, you know, you can do your own research to find the plants. And the Xerces Society one is really great because it'll tell you when the plant blooms. Oh, yes. So you can create your own staggered little list. Oh, and what yes. I did was, for parking strips, was I also just picked plants that were really drought tolerant. Oh, yes, of course. Yeah, so yeah. that you, because watering those strips is really tough. <laughs> yeah. And the Xerces Society also has a really great book called Attracting Native Pollinators. Mm. And they have, uh, if you like, I really like tangible. I'm a book person, so I really like to have stuff in my hot little hand. And I like to mark things up and tag stuff. So they have some great pollinator plant lists as well. Wow. Soil and water conservation districts, too, can be really great resources for uh-huh. native plant sales. Right. And they're often not treated with chemicals. Yeah. Perfect. So if I heard you correctly, if we go to your website, pollinatorparkways.org, you have a PDF that generally talks about creating a pollinator parkway and resources on your website to find out what plants you should plant in your area. Yeah, there will be links that will lead you to ideas and what you can plant in your area. And I've been considering, you know, and it's something where I'm always open to hear from people. Uh You know, I would love love to hear that people were starting similar projects in their own neighborhoods around the countries. And I'm very much like want to share everything possible and avoid reinventing the wheel whenever possible. So sometimes people will ask me about their specific area, and I'll help them research a little bit to find out where they can track down the information they need. Mm-hmm. And if people are like, I want to make a manual for my space, like I could send them like a publisher file, and Perfect. people could just alter it themselves. So nice. I'm all about sharing information yeah. if if you had a listener who really wanted to do this in their space, in their neighborhood, mm-hmm. I would love that. Excellent. 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 Pollinatorparkways.org. That's right. Cool. So I'm going to shift on you and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that ferry and what you might have learned from it. Sure. Well, I, so last year, last November was my first time getting a project. 
uh, and deciding there, I had a lot of people who were seniors or had a disability or they were low income, but really wanted to convert parking strips. And some people just had really big, I had some 600 square foot parking strips. Oh my gosh. And I got a small little grant. It was like a $500 gift card to a native nursery here. (laughs) And I converted 3,000 square feet with $500. And I learned that that does not go very far. (laughs) And so I ended up with a lot of pretty skimpy looking parking strips, Mm -hmm. which for a lot of people who were beginning gardeners, you know, they were like, so that's it, huh? <laughs> and what happened, too, is that weeds can come in. Ideally, I'm a big fan of kind of cram escaping, for lack of a better word. Uh-huh. You want, like, a really nice, dense plants in there. You get your natives all going, and some of them, you know, die back in the winter and stuff. But having stuff going all the time to shade out competitors, yeah. like weeds, right. means you won't have to weed as often. And so I really learned a lesson about how far $500 goes. And I just never spent that kind of money on plants before. So I spent a lot of time scrambling and trying to get free plants and people were dividing. And so this year, my second year, Mm -hmm. I asked for grants, uh, which I kind of, you know, tripled the amount Uh that I need and kind of came up with a little calculation. And then I'm also going to be utilizing a lot more seeds. Oh, good. When I had done research, I had really focused on perennials because I thought to myself, why am I going to buy a plant that's only going to last like one season? What a waste. But then I really came to learn about like California poppies are this amazing Mm. (laughs) annual Mm -hmm. that will reseed itself and it's gorgeous and bees love it. And they can actually, a lot of bees actually overnight out in the wilds. And plants that can close up around them, they'll take shelter oh. inside those closed plants. Oh, and it interesting. And from wind and predators and rain. Wow. So I would, this year I'll be using a lot more seeds, and I've been growing a lot of showy milkweed, which is the monarch-supporting mm-hmm. butterfly for right. my area. And I just learned a lot about how to stretch. I mean, I'm good at stretching a dollar, but <laughs> <laughs> I can't stretch it too much, so... This year, there will be much more densely planted areas. And and I also just had to really realize that, especially once I put an interpretive sign in, each of these are demonstration gardens, Uh especially right now, for people to look Mm, at and hopefully to be this thing of beauty and inspiration. And if it's this skimpy, weed-infested thing, that's not going to be very valuable. So that was my lesson and got on top of the weeds and have been filling in a lot of the parking strips just by scavenging around the neighborhood. Perfect. (laughs) But yeah, but then I also have been tempted by free plants that are not native and not, you know, I don't know if they really support pollinators. A Mm -hmm. lot of people say, oh, the bees love them. But then the only thing that visits is a honeybee. Right. And so I also had to really trust in my research and all the work that I did and say, no, I actually did this research for a reason Mm -hmm. and I need to stick with my guns and know what works. Yeah. So those were those were the biggest lessons wow. I learned. Cool. So what do you consider your biggest success? I think the biggest success is, well, what is very cool is to look at the strips that were converted mm-hmm. and, um, and see all the bee activity. And for the, the people who took part, in the, and it was their parking strip, they've really become these active, super excited stewards. A lot of the people I talked to weren't even aware that there was more than one kind of bee. 
Oh, right. Yeah, exactly. And so they're like, there's more than one kind of bee? And I'm like, sure. And now they're looking and saying, oh, look at these tiny little beautiful green ones. They're Mm -hmm. so shiny. And and they're just excited and they're showing their children and just bragging about it. And they're really supportive on, uh, I have a pretty active Facebook page. I try and post a tip or piece of information every day. and, And they're like engaging a lot with it. And so just seeing the kind of believership mm-hmm. and connecting people to the opportunity to make a difference about something they really care about is really exciting. And this year I had uh, three times as many inquiries to have their strips converted as last wow. year. And so people really, really care about the topic uh-huh. and being able to like hand over just some answers and for people to say, oh, I can do that. And just you don't have to be a botanist or a landscape architect or an entomologist in order to know enough to have a positive impact. Yeah. And so that's, that's just the exciting part about the overall project. There are some really beautiful parking strips out there that everybody in the neighborhood knows about. Right. And uh, that, that's really exciting to me. Wow. How cool. Just excitement to be generated. Yeah, exactly. So I, how are you interacting with the government entities or the city entities that um, might claim to have some authority over those parking strips? So parking strips in Portland, anyway, uh-huh. I had interacted a lot with the city to ask about things like right of way and what can I plant and what do I need a permit for. And Portland's laws are pretty relatively loose. Uh-huh. So I need a permit for trees, and trees can be amazing pollinator support. I mean, you'd be kind of surprised. I was surprised. Even trees that don't flower can become a host plant for uh-huh. like dozens of kinds of butterflies and moths, and also great for birds. So I connect people with the experts on those topics, and I would say, all right, you want trees? Go to Friends of Trees. They, uh-huh. They'll hook you up. Um, but... The owner in Portland is responsible for maintaining that parking strip by law, and it's but it's also a public right-of-way. Right. So I had talked with the city about converting them, and there was just no problems here. And I've heard of places um, where there are HOAs or uh-huh. city laws in some places in California where people have tried to grow food and not been yep. allowed to or they've been fined. Right. And so just touching base with your local city to say, hey, here's the project, here's what it looks like, here's what I want to do, do you see any problems with that? And there were no problems here, so I felt very confident in in moving forward. People just need to be able to cross the strips, so I talked to people about laying pathways so that they can cross um, safely, and they can open their car doors and things like that. So on these these, uh, parking strips that you're converting, are you converting them all, or are you're getting you're getting the neighbors to do it, right? Or some yeah, of both? Yeah. Well, in some cases, there are. It kind of depends. So I screen people, and I just have conversations with them. And some people are have a strip that's three feet wide and fifteen feet across, and they're like, "Oh, I can dig it up myself. Mm-hmm. Um, I just need di- design ideas, or I just need a plant list, or I just need to know where I need to buy plants." And some people just want information and they can do the rest themselves 
And then other people who have um, barriers, like some of my folks are like, wow, this is a huge strip. I can't do this by myself or, mm-hmm. or I'm, you know, a senior and my back can't handle digging up grass. Are you crazy? Then we just got volunteers from the neighborhood and they came out last year in the pouring rain. It was like mm. more rain than we'd had in the last eight months combined. It was uh-huh. sheets of rain. But it was really great to dig in. And they dug it all up. Everyone was such a trooper, soaking wet, and planted it up and and put in mulch. I really also had before underestimated the value of mulch, and I will never <laughs> underestimate that again. Yeah, no kidding. Because <laughs> no I'm a relatively new gardener. I've, I only right. started gardening three years ago. So. Oh, wow. Uh, and I'm just really open and transparent with people. You know, I don't want to pretend to have knowledge I don't have or be something I'm not. So I'm like, but I just researched this one really specific topic, and I know a lot of things about this one specific thing. Gotta love it. And Yeah, and people have all been, like, just really understanding. And the people who came last year, you know, they were like, are there any examples? And I'm like, nope, you're a pioneer. What do you think? <laughs> and they took a chance on this crazy lady who appeared, nice. crazy bee lady. And so this year, people say, well, do you have any examples? And I'll have tons of pictures and say, yeah, this is what it's looking like. If you want a wild, creative, like, space that's full of color and full of bustling activity, that's what that's what we're creating. You can have a more mild version. You can right. have, like, a really low-level Yeah. Like the succulent strip was great. The downside to it is it all blooms at once. Oh, right. So where I'm at is like you can do a lot of low-lying stuff, but we still need to have that staggered blooming. Yeah. Like we still need to support Important. those late bees. Right. And right. as people understand that and they become attached to bees the same way I did when I took photos of them, I share my photos and that uh, that really gets to people because the photos are... They're, you know, they're on these bright, colorful flowers. Right. And the bees are soft and fuzzy. And mm. there's, I mean, they're really cute. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so they start to get attached as well. And they, they're concerned. They're like, well, I don't want the bee to starve to death. My gosh. And, and here, well, here's what you can do to keep your local bees healthy and happy and yeah. fed. Yeah. So what drives you? What drives me is a... I think for for this case is is a just a concern. I mean, I it's very easy to despair when you hear about environmental issues mm-hmm. and it's it's really easy to get discouraged and kind of want to give up. Right. And you start to think about the magnitude of the problems that we have and we've created and we're responsible for too and and so what this project really does is it it took the energy that would have gone into crying about it (laughs) and said all right so what are we going to do like got to pick yourself up dust yourself off and say what are we doing to fix it and it's been really really satisfying because i do this in in addition to my full-time job Mm -hmm. so i really like i'm busy all the time (laughs) i am like a bee and (laughs) so being able to see the results and celebrate in those really small Mm, victories mm -hmm. and what's a small victory for me like this parking strip is really small but it's a really big impact on the small creatures that I'm working with and to watch my I got mason bees and I went from having 10 I bought 10 mason bees last year and I had 12 nests and this year I had 42 nests that you did not buy Nope, I did not buy. They That's just, were just there. how the population, yeah. you know, jumped. And 
maybe that's not all because of my gardening, but you know, those, those 40 bees I had an impact on. And so I just really keep focused on what I have control over and what I have power over and what I have influence over and make sure that my actions have a positive influence because our, our actions impact the world. Yeah. And so even in a small way, and you just want to make sure that they're good impacts. And, yeah. and that just, it pushes me to hold myself to a higher standard mm. and inspire other people without judging you know, it's not like you're bad. It's like, here's what you can do to improve. Here's what you yeah. can do to, you know, make things better for other living creatures. Yeah. So I just searched Mason bee on the internet mm-hmm. for pictures, and it pretty much looked like a honeybee. Um, yeah. It Well, a mason bee is usually a solid color, uh-huh. like kind of a black or with a little bit of a, a bluish tint, whereas bumblebees have stripes on their abdomen Uh, Uh, and mason bees they nest in individual little cavities yep i actually when my mason bees emerged for the first time i i took photos of them and they were you know coming out into the light for the first time and their hair was all matted like a little kids like it was kind of wet oh yeah spiky and it was sticking out everywhere and i was completely not emotionally prepared for how charming (laughs) they would be when they were first coming out but yeah, a lot of bees look really similar. They look really similar to wasps, and there are lots of pollinating wasps as well. Oh, yeah. And wasps are kind of like treated like bad guys, but there's actually 2,000 species of wasps in the, that don't even have stingers that, oh, wow. that, are, that are perfectly More harmless. They're actually yeah. really, they're pollinators. They're really great. Um, wasps eat meat, so they are great for um, taking out pests, mm, garden pests. Right. And uh, there are some that specialize in just killing aphids. And mm-hmm. I didn't used to have an opinion about aphids until I started gardening. Now <laughs> I have opinions about aphids. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and anything that destroys aphids, I get really excited about. Yeah. But well, yeah, mason a... bees are pretty subtle and they're really quiet. And and to give you an idea, comparing a mason bee to a honeybee, you can have a massive, uh, a big tree, like a big apple tree. Uh-huh. And it'll take, you know, I think it takes something like 30 honeybees to pollinate that entire tree, uh-huh. three mason bees can do the job. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, because wow. they're really sloppy, so they get, <laughs> they get <laughs> hair. They get, they're, they're messy eaters, so they get pollen all over their bodies. And, uh-huh. and then they go and they visit another flower, and some of the pollen is left behind right. and more is picked up, and that's exactly yeah. what pollination is. And honeybees are really good at making pollen permanently stick to their bodies until they get oh, back to the hive. Right. And so that's why they're not actually as, not good, as good at pollinating as our, our little sloppy uh, eaters, little messy bees. Yeah. Wow. So I'm all about education, and I have to know, is there one book that has been influential for you in this process in your life? Mm, so I, I'm i going to cheat and say I have a couple. Okay. But one of the one of the ones that really one of the ones that changed the way I viewed how insects uh, interact with my garden was there's a book by Douglas Tallamy called Bringing Nature Home. Uh-huh. And he was the, he's an entomologist who wrote this book and he really helped me see uh, he really created a spark in understanding how native plants are important but also he was the one that was like if something's eating your plant that's a beautiful thing. And yeah. I just never thought about it. And right. I, it really blew my mind. And 
shifted some of the ways that I see about the really, really deep value of insects mm. in our world mm-hmm. and how we're really kind of trained to be like, oh, a bug, what is it? Like, kill it, like, spray right, it, exactly. like, squash it. Um, you're bad, you're, you're misbehaving, and, and really understanding that there actually aren't any bad bugs. There's really just ways that it's like when you have bug pod aphids, for example, getting out mm-hmm. of control, and when you're killing all the predator insects, your aphids are going to continue to be out of control. Right. And so he, that book really inspired me to think about insects differently. And then the Attracting Native Pollinators by the Xerces Society oh, yes. really helped me think about what to do to support bees. And I used that. I learned a lot about bees itself and about creating habitat. And I, I use the Xerces Society a lot. They're, they're really approachable and responsive. They have a lot of technical stuff if you mm-hmm. want to get technical, and they have great stuff for uh, laymen and beginners, too. So, and I just really trust their information. They're, you know, they're scientists right. <laughs> basing yeah. their stuff on research. So yeah, perfect. So, what one yeah. final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? My piece of advice is to talk to your nurseries and go get a flowering native plant. And go go enjoy, and you will be amazed at how beautiful and incredible the native plants are in your area. And they don't have to be super flashy. There's there's a lot of beauty and subtlety, and a lot of plants have been cultivated to have these really giant blooms. Mm-hmm. And actually having a smaller bloom complement this really beautiful green foliage, for example, can be, um, it's just beautiful in a different way. So. Yeah. My my advice is to really embrace native plants. They're they're made for your region, and it's another kind of restoration, and you'll yeah. just have more wildlife in your <laughs> garden. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show and sharing your experience with us today, Sherry. It has been a treat getting to chat with you. I have had a lot of fun cool. <laughs> talking, so thanks for having me on. Absolutely. So how can our listeners get a hold of you? So pollinatorparkways.org is a great way. You can contact me that way, Mm -hmm. or I also just have an email, is pollinatorparkways at gmail.com. And I have, like I said, a really active Facebook page. I'm pretty responsive to that, Mm -hmm. especially on evenings and weekends. Oh, nice. So lots of ways to reach out, ask me questions. I'm happy to answer what I can or try to help you find the right answer for your region. I love that passion behind what you're doing. <laughs> I just really love sharing information. Yeah. yeah. So on Facebook, we can follow you, find you at Pollinator Parkways? That's right. All right, perfect. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. Did you know the best seeds for your garden don't come from the nursery? In fact, the seeds that will create the most robust and delicious fruits and vegetables come directly from your garden. This is because they are uniquely adapted to your growing conditions, better than anything you can buy from a fancy catalog or website. Through the magic of seed saving, it is quite possible to have the garden of your dreams. The best part is, saving your own seeds is surprisingly easy and fun. With a bit of instruction, anyone can become a seed saving superstar. Let us teach you how in our free seed saving webinar. Just text SEEDS to 33444 to sign up or visit seedsavinghacked.org for more information. That's SEEDS 
to 33444 or visit seedsavinghacked.org. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen three days a week for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free.